Welcome to Fertile Minds Radio. Here you'll find wisdom for your fertility journey and beyond, chosen specifically to help you trust your body and elevate your spirit so you can enjoy the process. Join us and see what a fertile mind feels like. Now your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland. Hello and welcome to Fertile Minds Radio. I'm your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland. I am a doctor of oriental medicine, certified meditation teacher, and a board certified reproductive specialist. And I practice at Art of Acupuncture here in beautiful St. Pete, Florida. My commitment to you in this podcast is to bring you the world's best experts in the field of fertility and mind-body medicine. I am super excited to share today's guests with you, Mark Sherman and Dr. Kate Webster. They are the creators of a revolutionary online course called Organic Conceptions. This course began with founders Aaron and Mark Sherman's personal struggle in trying to conceive for nearly a decade. Yes, a decade. In partnership with Dr. Kate Webster, they used proven scientific practices to dig deep into stories from couples like them who unexpectedly overcame infertility natural, meaning those people that you hear about all the time that adopted and then conceived or quit trying and gave up and suddenly here was the baby. What happened was is that each individual story began to offer insight. When they wove them together, it provided this roadmap that others could use to guide themselves on this journey. Organic Conception's goal is to chart a course that educates, engages, and empowers couples just like you on your path to parenthood. So I had the pleasure of doing a five-hour CEU with these two this week, and it was just amazing. There's so much information that they provided, and so much of it was parallel with what I see day in and day out in my clinical practice. And it it's amazing because it's what we as acupuncturists try to do to help get our patients to this place of mindfulness and surrender and reclaiming their life around, you know, their journey of getting to this baby, but to have this paradigm where it was really mapped out almost like the stages of grief. It's just, it's going to be absolutely instrumental in how so many of us practice. And and I really think just getting our patients to a place of of what they want quicker with an understanding and and a deep gratitude and joy. So I'm going to give you just a brief little background bio of them, um, all their credentials so that you can understand who you're listening to and who you're giving your time to. We'll start with Dr. Kate Webster. She obtained a bachelor's degree from the University of Alaska Southeast in 1995 and a PhD in behavioral psychology from the University of Rhode Island in 2001. Her training is in behavioral and social psychology with a focus on multivariate statistics and research methods. This woman has so much information when it comes to stats, it makes your brain want to bleed almost, but she tells it to you in a way that you can understand, so that's why she's here today. She has worked within the Alaska State Legislature, Brown University, Kent Hospital, the University of Rhode Island, and various business-to-business and uh, business-to-consumer Fortune 500 companies where she's developed experimental designs to apply multivariate analysis to investigate the efficacy of various programs or campaign strategies that target human behavior and track customers' and patients' journeys along the way. 
She's passionate about connecting with people, students, teaching, understanding multicultural and gender issues, social and health psychology, and challenging our theoretical models and the analytic methodologies to which they are anchored, which if you've listened to this podcast before, you know I love to do those things. <laughs> she lives on her boat with her dog, Homer. Uh, she remains actively engaged in researching women's health issues and believes in advancing the role of women in science. She cares deeply about our planet at the global and community level, which is probably why she's doing this kind of work. She's a do-it-yourselfer type and loves all types of water sports. So now on to Mark. Mark is the husband and father of three children, Maxwell, 12, Emerson, 6, and Kennedy, 4. He graduated from the University of Rhode Island with a bachelor's in marketing and has spent over 20 years working in a variety of sales and marketing leadership positions. For the last three years, Mark has dedicated himself to his work on forming Organic Conceptions Organization. Both Mark and Kate are dedicated to uncovering the patterns, insights, and commonalities from couples who unexpectedly overcame infertility. It is their belief that society evolves through shared experiences, which is my belief too, which is why I'm on this podcast storytelling with you guys. What they learned through these stories allows them to provide couples with the critical emotional support and self-discovery tools that can dramatically alter their journey to parenthood and beyond. On a personal note, he loves clamming, grilling, boating, and enjoying the summer months with his family at the beach. We really have to get you guys down here to St. Pete. <laughs> Absolutely. February. So it's one of my favorite places on the planet. So Yes. All right. So welcome to the show. Without further ado, let's let's get into this this meat of, of what we're here to bring our listeners. What I thought we would do is um, just kind of let you get your bearings and tell us a bit about the program. Kate, we'll have you go over the goal of this program, what it is and what it's not. And then Mark, you're going to give us a brief overview, right? Yeah, that would be perfect for sure. And thank you so much for having us, Hillary. You're doing amazing work and we feel very fortunate to be here and the opportunity to share this information with your listeners. So thank you for the opportunity. Oh, no, thank you. All right. So Kate, tell us the goal of this program so that everybody's clear what it's designed to do and not to do, because I feel like it's really important to manage expectations, especially since that's kind of the cornerstone of your program is all about managing expectations, right? Yeah, it's all about the way in which we think. First of all, thank you very much for um, including us. You did a beautiful job on the intro. Thank you so very much. And um, I want to say hello to everybody and thank you for giving me your time. So Organic Conceptions, I am the chief researcher within Organic Conceptions, and Mark and I have been working um, through this, through the research, through developing an actual theoretical model, and then applying that theoretical model for the last three years. So this is very, very exciting to be here with you today. So the program, Organic Conceptions, Journey to Parenthood, and a lot of times we will add journey to parenthood and beyond because a lot of the ways in which we deal with adversity in our lives is inherent, especially when we're in this struggle of infertility. So um, Mark's going to go through the theoretical model and what did emerge. But I just wanted to talk about what the goals are. First of all, the primary goals within the program is this idea that this journey that couples and women are on is a process. There were overlapping identifiable patterns that we could use that were predictors of what enters next into our world when we're struggling with infertility. And what the goal is, is to first of all help you to understand that it is a process. 
and that there is a common language that can be used for couples to express some of the fears and anxiety and social pressures that it is that they're experiencing as they go through this journey, as well as understanding that couples are not alone. We know that, um, you know, depending on the statistics that you're looking at, between one in eight and one in six couples struggle with infertility issues. So um, with that being said, Mark and Erin, struggling for a decade, yeah, it was a decade, to build their family. That's where the seeds came from this overall program. And I want to just kind of reiterate what the program is not and then what it is, because we've been working with partners who have helped us to kind of understand, all right, is it meditation? Is it relaxation? Is it behavioral? What is it? So this is what the program is not about preaching to couples that they need to just relax and let go. We know that those are fighting words. That It's not about that. It's not about endorsing or following a path that will lead to a natural conception. The go- of course, we want to have a natural conception. That is our goal in all of this. But at the same time, What we want to do is we want to bring this idea of preconception health and well-being into the emotional realm because many times that gets left to the wayside. So it's not about following a path to natural conception. It's about following a path to peace. We're not promoting false health. It's not about targeting only couples trying to conceive naturally because we all have a path that we are following and and there may be different outcomes that happen. And it's not necessarily a meditation or relaxation program. Hillary will take care of that for us. So what the program (laughs) is about, it's about embracing your journey with awareness, providing a predictable path for couples to know that they are not alone And very similar, very many times to find out where they are in that journey so that we can interrupt those storms that may be ahead and kind of avoid and navigate around them. It's about helping to disrupt automatic thinking that we have a tendency to do, especially under stress. And this automatic thinking is surrounding societal expectations, particularly women's roles and life sequencing. And it's also to understand the importance of how our thoughts manifest into our bodies. So there's our mind, body, spirit piece that's really coming through, through these cognitive changes that we can do. And we're teaching techniques to, when in doubt, zoom out, look at the bigger picture. And the ultimate goal is finding peace and flexibility in our decisions. So that's what the program is about. And that's um, the overall goals, a process, a language, and to know that you're not alone. Isolation is one of the leading psychological distresses that occur with women struggling with infertility. Yeah, isolation. I see that all the time. I think if you've ever walked into a reproductive endocrinologist office in the waiting room, it's like the jig is up. Everybody's there for the same thing, except no one's speaking and they certainly aren't making eye contact. Yeah, right. right? And <laughs> there's like... that stigma piece, right? We feel damaged and broken. So yes. And I think, I think too, I'll just add, uh, Kate, that was great in terms of just us being really fear in terms of setting expectations. But I think that if, as we continue to look at, you know, putting people in an optimal position 
uh, as they move forward in their journey. I mean, there's just so much information out there, um, preconception health, if you will, relative to diet and products we might use and types of exercise and prenatal care. And there's just, there's just all these different spokes that exist of all the different things that, that couples need to be thinking about. Um, but however, there's very little relative to our emotional health and our well-being. And you know what? I just after spending three years of researching these stories of couples that had this unexpected conception, I mean, I just know Kate and I are just becoming so just, you just can't discount that there's a powerful force happening here. And there's essentially no division between the mind and body and our ability to optimize people's health and their well-being because there's so many pitfalls, Hillary. You've seen it. There's places that we can end up that we can so easily understand how we can get there, but it's just... We can end up creating an environment that's so unhealthy and we can really taint the relationship we have with this beautiful journey, with our bodies, with our loved ones. And I just think that uh, I love the way you started the whole thing, Hillary, which is that we do evolve through shared experiences. And uh, you also pointed out that these are also the stories that are frustrating to hear of the couples that end up conceiving unexpectedly. I know for my wife and I, we would hear these all the time of the couple that adopted and conceived. And when you generally hear these stories, you hear them at face value. You just, you just hear that alone. And that doesn't help you in any way. It, if anything, makes you feel like, A, it's someone else's success story, so it further hurts relative to where you are and someone just achieved what you are so dying to achieve, number one. And number two, it makes you feel like you're actually part of the problem, that you're creating an environment that's not healthy or you're creating a stressful environment. And um, However, though, you know, when you get deeper into these stories and you, you bring in an expert like Dr. Kate that can help uncover the patterns, the insights, the commonalities, there's lessons here. And these shared experiences, for sure, I mean, we are just the storytellers of all the wonderful couples that allowed us to go very deep into the, their stories to understand what was happening. And yeah, yeah, this now serves as a as a guide to put couples in an optimal position to understand how they can approach their journey maybe in a different way and you could potentially there might be a surprise relative to how powerful that mindset might be and we hope to change a lot of the thoughts and beliefs that people have yeah what i think is great about your program is you guys you interview a lot of couples that were on this journey and like you said it's not just the well they stopped trying and they got pregnant or they adopted and they got pregnant, you really get to see the depth of their emotional struggles and you can you can connect with that as to, oh my gosh, I was feeling the same thing. And sometimes these stories that you guys have in your program are years later and you can, you just, you, you see that the emotion is still very much there, but what they've gained is they've gained this insight into their emotional well-being and their relationship and, and a, a way of how to speak to one another so that it's not hurtful. And they're continuing to learn from that all these years later. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so vivid. They could recall years ago down to a moment of what was happening and the feelings and emotions as if it was yesterday. It just speaks to the magnitude of, of a couple that's in this, I don't want to say struggle, but heading down a, a path where at this point there might be a lot of uncertainty. It's, um, it stays with us. So now that we've talked about what the, the program is and is not, I know that there are going to be some people out there that hear, okay, they, they use science and they use statistics. Um, and Kate, I told you, you know, in college, stats with my nemesis. So if you could just break this down for our listeners about how did you go about this cohort and this study as if it was me trying to understand. <laughs> That's great. I and I, I'm sure you, you, you get it. So this whole idea, what we're doing is we're taking the stories 
and I call it integrating or synthesizing or weaving the idea of measurement, so numbers with meaning. Our science is really, really good at saying what's happening, but sometimes it lacks the idea of why something is happening. So by combining this idea of numbers and stories, if you will, we're able to quantify the experiences that couples are having. So what we do when we do this is we anchor to, we pull in all these theories that are out there. So we have a biological model. We have a psychological model. We have a social influence model. I'm a social psychologist. So I'm interested in how society drives behaviors, right? How those expectations that we have of our roles and our gender and our place in life kind of determine what it is that we do. So we're really interested in those influences. So we combine the biology, our emotional component with our social influences, and we call that a biopsychosocial model of investigation. So what we do is basically we're capturing the stories. So we partnered with a group out of the University of Utah to begin to kind of qualify couples that we were trying to recruit in that we wanted to have couples who had struggled with infertility. It didn't matter when that struggle was necessarily, but struggled with infertility and then through some process came to a place where they actually became parents, most of them naturally. So basically what we do is we there's a qualitative component, that's the meaning, that's the stories, that's the narratives of couples that provided us this written journey of how they had gone through their processes. And we did that for each couple. There were approximately 50 interviews. And then what we did is we had a holdout group that we actually used to kind of deconstruct these stories. So we look for patterns, just like you as practitioners look for patterns in the rhythm and whether it be our pulses or whatever it be, our energy flow, whatever those things are, we're all looking for patterns. And we're just evidence-based storytellers. That's the bottom line of this. (laughs) But we include this narrative. So we would ask couples to write, mostly women did the writing, to write down their journey. And then we interviewed them and understood their journey from a verbal perspective of how they were feeling about it. And then they also completed surveys for us when we were assessing their kind of quality of life indicators, like, you know, how satisfied were you with treatment? What was your level of sadness during this particular stage? And then we combine those, those narratives with the survey responses. And what we're able to do is we're able to what we call triangulate or confirm what we heard in the qualitative with the survey responses and what we heard in the survey responses with the qualitative narratives. So it's a mixed model approach. It's a beautiful way of doing research and where we're able to identify, okay, what was it? And then why might that be? What is the context of all of this. And we heard fears and sorrows and joys. And then we also were able to identify gifts in these journeys. So we anchor to these biopsychosocial models. We capture the information through qualitative and quantitative data. 
and then we discover the patterns. And within these patterns, through these interviews, a three-prong theoretical model, I'm trying to think of another way to say that. So a three-prong theoretical model involving self-coping and fear of moving forward. So all this whole process starts with feelings we have about self and the social influences and how we begin to shame and blame ourselves. And then we're in treatment and the idea of coping with some of these emotions and just the stress of treatment when you're not finding success is very, very difficult in this daily interference. And then there becomes a fear of moving on with life. And that was one of the biggest places where couples were feeling stuck. They were boxed in. So through this discovery of this theoretical model that literally emerges, it just keeps building on itself from the data, we were able to develop a journey map that enables couples to understand the three components of self-concept, difficulty coping, and fear of moving on with life. And there are triggers within each and every one of those um, concepts that Mark is going to take us through in terms of there's three triggers in the self-doubt or conception of doubt, three triggers within the patients-to-patient chapter, and then three triggers in this idea of surrendering to life, where we actually come to a place of peace and acceptance. And then through that peace and acceptance, what happened with couples is they had that preconception health in their emotional state, as well as in their physical state, and they were working with practitioners, and there became a surprise pregnancy. So it's the way in which we can increase the probability of a conception. Awesome. Thank you for that explanation. I think that that is going to be uh, much easier for somebody to understand how how this program came about and from the science and, and the importance of, of learning about your mental-emotional well-being. Because I do notice that you know, my, my fertility patients are some of the most self-educated, responsible people when it comes to their health by the time they hit me, an acupuncturist, right? They've done the diets. They know all about all the IVF processes and the drugs that they're about to put into their body if they're on that path. You know, the tests that they can get, they're so driven and the physical aspect, but there's not a lot who have really looked at the the mental, emotional states that they're undergoing or will undergo, and they don't really have a um, support network for that or a, a languaging. And this program is so cool because they can go through it at their own pace in the comfort of their own home, and they don't. It's not yet another appointment that they have to make, and they can do it as a couple. Yes, <laughs> shattering yes. thing. That's exactly. Right. Uh, yes. They can involve the man in the conception. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm just coming from you know trying to be there and support my wife, and and as the research came through to tell is that there's two different experiences happening across the way the woman might be, um, not might be the way the woman is experiencing this process, and how a, a man, a partner, might be experiencing this process, and neither are right or wrong, Hillary, but they are different in our inability to have uh, language to engage in this. process process and to be able to communicate where we're at, that allows us, if there's one thing at the center of this thing, it should be a united couple
people. And uh, just by the nature of the way that the journey unfolds, there is a difference in the experience, which would, which does lead to a disconnect um, where for many women, it was, you know, they want to be validated. They, there's a level of urgency that this is uh, their identity that's at risk. They might feel that every month that goes by, the time is ticking. They're, we're all been told our biological clocks are ticking and we're in this race against time. And there's generally a disconnect in terms of the urgency levels across um, the husband and the wife. And again, neither right or wrong, but I think a lot of what we're going to do through the whole program is provide these these vehicles for the couple to engage in a, a deeper conversation, to come together, to be aligned, to ensure that they're really progressing forward as a united couple, because the process alone can be so, so mechanical and so, so difficult. And actually, when we talk about where the unexpected conceptions did happen, even prior to the unexpected conception, there's just a lot of statistics that talk about the importance of the couple and the reuniting of the couple. Um, so our goal is to hopefully save people a lot of time and energy and and save them and keep them really connected up front. So yes, I can speak so much about the couple piece of it because I wish I had a tool like this to maybe help my wife and I to communicate at a level and also for us to know and find some boundaries in a process that, uh, Hillary, as you know, um, people aren't short on finding uh, or hearing about recommendations of what they're supposed to do or not do. And that alone could be very overwhelming. And for many, uh, there's lots of things that they might be giving up that are very important to them, uh, their spirits, and to their relationship and their connection to life. Oh, yeah. We're going to go into all of that in detail for sure. And, you know, just one of those stats, I mean, so many of your stats really drove home what I see, but one of them really made sense for me, what you just spoke about, about the male and the the female having kind of two different senses of urgency. So it's really often that I'll have a woman come in and she'll say, my husband just, he's great. He's so supportive. He keeps just trying to remind me to just let go and it's going to happen and there's nothing wrong, you know, and I, and I just really need to calm down. I should calm down. And what I'm hearing is even my partner doesn't understand what I'm and feeling. So not, and that's where the disconnection stops, right. starts, even and though there's, there's well. a lack of validation, Absolutely. right? And I just want to add to that, you know, when I interviewed Mark and other men in our, in our study, they were concerned, but it presents differently. So, you know, we have to kind of understand that their way of being, if you will, or relating is distinctly different from that of women many times. So they may be concerned. And what we saw in our statistics was the woman's perception of her husband's concern. So so that's really important because right. we want them to say, you know, kind of help them to understand that, yes, you can talk about this. You don't need to fix it, but you do need to talk, about it, you know. Right. And that difference is beautiful and the mental, yeah. emotional level as well as the Somebody's physical level. The that's ship, what makes it right? work, right? <laughs> at the helm. So, yeah. Yes. Okay, so before we kind of go into some specific stats in each of the chapters, Mark, if you could just kind of give a brief overview to our listeners of the the three chapters and the nine transitions or tipping points that became a common thread in your work. And I I think you called them primary emotional states. Yeah. So yeah, it was and we call them chapters because as Kate and I were going through the process, just every story through all these stories started to culminate into these three themes. So the first one um, is what we call the conception of doubt. And in each of these chapters, there's the first is called the conception of doubt. Then there's where we talk about couples losing patience and becoming a patient. And then there's a surrender into life. Those became the three chapters that 
th- three themes. And when within each of them, there's these three transitions or tipping points that really started to become these, these sub-themes that started to become very pivotal in every story that could be statistically backed. And, and through us exploring them, we can really put couples in a position to normalize what they're feeling, to validate it. But then the important piece is to empower them. There's so much choice here, Hillary, that exists Believe it or not, some choice relinquishes our power. Other others kind of keep it with us, and that can be very empowering for couples. So, um, so the, yeah, there was three chapters and kind of these nine transitions that that we go through in the program. Uh, the first, the conception of doubt, just at the highest level. This entire chapter really, we talk about these expectations and pressures, these time oriented milestones on how we see life progressing that became so pivotal in all the stories. So we talk about expectations and pressures. Then the expectations and pressures meet this delay in conception, which there's a personalization of that delay where women take on the ownership. They interpret that as their bodies, they're broken. Uh, In many ways, they're a part that needs to be fixed. So they start to create a belief system about what's happening because of the delay. Uh, Kate, I know all the time says there's a leaping that delay equals infertility. And then we talk about this power of doubt where people really start to architect a story that's based on fear and doubt. And it becomes really in many ways the way we start to think about our journey. So this entire chapter is anchored in the construct that Kate talked about earlier, which is people's sense of self, where really through this process, couples can feel diminished. They can define themselves essentially by what's not happening. They are architecting a story that's so oriented based on fear and doubt and in danger and feeling broken. And they really start to to limit what is possible through their thoughts and through their beliefs. And our, it's our goal through the program is to help disrupt that doubt and uh, help them address the emotional components that are there, which is social anxiety, there's doubt, there's fear, and ultimately feeling a diminished sense of self. So that's the first kind of chapter. I don't know if you, uh, Hillary, have any questions or Dr. Kate, anything to add there before I go to the second? I was just going to say that I just wanted to list some of the five primary expectations that had arisen in the data. And the first one was age, and it has to do with the biological age of the woman. And that's the first question that's asked, how old are you? Uh, And what they're really asking is, how old are your eggs? So... Um, that's something that that we truly challenge um, in the program, and we really want we want everybody to understand that we are more than eggs and sperm. So, and that was one of the fears which created this little hysteria around this whole timeline that's happening. And then it was sequencing of life event events. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby carriage. I mean, we're conditioned to hear these things, and then gender roles where in our society motherhood and parenthood are primary influences if we are to belong and to be part of mainstream sanctioned ways of being. So, and then images of success in our digitized society where we, uh, you know, we compare ourselves to even strangers where before we would have been at the family barbecue, but now we're out there in space. And then trust in a medical model. So age, sequencing, gender, images of success, trust in the medical model. And these are strong, powerful influences on how we feel about ourselves. So that's the conception of doubt has all to do with the way we think about ourselves. And generally, the way you think is the way you then start to become the way you act and behave. So in many ways, 
we think of our first chapter as the mind. The second chapter is where we lose patience and become a patient, starts to become the way we actually start to, to think about ourselves and our bodies and the action that we, we move forward in. So in the losing patience and becoming a patient, it's really looking through the journey of how couples ultimately become a patient. And uh, Hillary, as you know, you start to take on an identity and a label. And couples are sometimes hopeful that this they're going to get a diagnosis that can finally shed some light and provide them answers. And it's a very hopeful time in some ways, but then also uh, that when we get that label, the label, uh, we accept the terms of the label. And there's so much that we go through relative to um, becoming a patient, number one, then there's the compliance to the to the label and to the prescriptions that we get, as we call it, which is where you comply to all the things you're supposed to do or not do and make so many adjustments to our lives uh, in order to find a fix and solve this problem. Oh, Hillary, we had so many uh, even self-declared kind of type A women that say just when this wasn't happening, I felt like regardless of whose fault it was, if there was any issues between the male or the female, that women really took this thing on. It was their bodies, their fault, and many with their husband in off to the margin just push forward. They need to find answers. They need to find a fix. Time is running out in the level of compliance. And I lived this for many, many years that happens here can be overwhelming in terms of how couples ultimately give up living because they're living to try. So we explore becoming the patient, the compliance that comes with the label and how our identity really begins to shrink where everything that we used to make us up as important beings on this planet starts to become very limited and just shadowed by this inability to conceive. And in the program, we really experience, we really explore a lot of the side effects and the lessons that couples talked about when life became so robotic, so mechanical where where intimacy became planned relations. And we really bring those uh, lessons forward because there's just so much that I think couples can look at to understand how to keep their heart and their spirit and their intuition at the forefront as they head into this, this patient role. And by the way, heading into this is so normal. It's where you go. It's when something's not working. We need answers. We need to find a fix. We generally go to the experts, but there's a level of giving up control when we go there. And we hope to empower couples because at the heart of this chapter is to help couples cope because so many really were unable to cope. They became so overwhelmed. They withdrew themselves from society. They felt angry and jealous. And there was just so many strong emotions that came within this chapter. This was a really, this is where things got very hard for so many couples. And we think through these lessons, we can uh, help uh, prevent some of these, uh, some of these same struggles from happening. That's our hope. So that's the losing patience and become a patient. And then just to kind of wrap up, the third piece is a surrender into life. Oh gosh, this is where there are just so many amazing stories of couples that that found their way, that believed that the journey became the preparation, where couples were able to forgive themselves. And through that forgiveness and letting go of the past disappointments, they were new paths opened up and they started to ask different questions of this journey. And generally, when you think and ask different questions, there's different answers that start to emerge that you might not have seen when you're so focused on one particular outcome. So in the surrender to life, it's about keeping in, uh, couples engaged and connected in life. And we explore these three transitions. The first is a stage we call rawness, where there's this final blow where couples just really take stock that there's they're heading down this path and they've done this for so long, but there's this is not... Um, 
they're kind of at a position that they realize they might not be able to control this and will this to happen like they did, you know, their degrees or the house they wanted or anything else. So there's this level of this 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 raw state that couples got to. Um, we then talk about how couples begin to reach forward and unite together. And this is in no way ever giving up on, on parenthood. This is people um, just coming back to themselves and coming back to life and finding different ways in which they can continue to thrive and achieve their goals. So there's a reach stage here and then final renewal where there's just, uh, this is where we call the program, the journey to parenthood and beyond because people that had gone through this experience actually look back and said, the struggle was the gift. The struggle gave them time to do certain things that did matter. It's just sometimes in the moment, Hillary, we can't see that. It's that door shutting on you that you think is the worst possible thing to happen. And in wedding days, we look back and say, that led me to some other outcome. So there's a perspective of the totality of life and our experiences that we called renewal um, that just really changed the way people think about certainly their journey to parenthood, but I think the, the bigger perspective on life. So those are yeah. the three. I know. So, so much information. So you can see why we want to just give you some nuggets and things that you can take home and work with now. And because they've really done their homework, this is, this is exactly what I see in the treatment room every single day. So let's, let's dive into to chapter one. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of talk about some of the stats that really drove it home for me. And in chapter one and doubt, you know, a lot of our listeners might be past this chapter already. But my hope is, is that if you know somebody younger, maybe that has just gotten married or is, is just starting to talk about conception, that they oh, could yeah. circumvent so much stress if they, if yes, <laughs> by, that's exactly right. by addressing this chapter, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. <laughs> and here's your science to back this up. You found that 37% of women had preconception doubt even before they experienced a delay. So meaning more than one third of women thought that they would have a difficult time conceiving yeah. before yeah, they that, even started. Yeah, we call them pre-doubters. It's huge. It was this incredible way of thinking and it um, that way of thinking began to impact how they felt about themselves. And it also impacted their idea of their, am I capable of doing this? Am I worthy of doing this? Am I good enough to become a mother, right? So these, and when we dove deep into these, at first I was like, oh no, that's, that's better, right? But then when we began to dive into the stories, we hear it as little girls, you know, playing with dolls and how they felt that motherhood was so incredibly important to them, yet they had this gnawing belief, a growing belief that it would be denied to them. Right, like I've, I've tried all these other things and I've achieved, and what if this is the one thing I want so much and I can't get it? And it almost sometimes I think in this stage becomes kind yes. of a, a conspiracy yes. theory yes. of self-oppression or self-fulfilling prophecy, as humans, right? we have a tendency to attend to things that confirm what we hold in our beliefs. So if we're holding on our beliefs that we, we're going to have problems with conception, then that first delay that may occur is a confirmation of that. And rather than trying to reframe what that missed cycle might be, it's, it's immediately a leaping to conclusion um, that, yes, my belief is confirmed, I'm not going to be able to do this, and our bodies are listening. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, and that's one of the things I think my patients are unaware of when I explain to them that their cells are 
yes, they're taking in the external environment, but really the commander is the thoughts that they're thinking, those those 70 thoughts a day that okay. they're broadcasting yeah. to every cell. And then the cell is going, okay, I'll do this based on what you say. And that 70% of those thoughts are on replay. They're like a uh, screensaver. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think so many people just, we believe we're all about our genes. And for so many, it's just our lab results. And it's the statistic that comes along with the lab results. And there's just so so much amazing research that Beliefs, there's a book called Beliefs Trump Genes, and there's just so much more knowledge about truly our belief systems and how that could truly trump your genes, whatever those might be, what you might think they're, they're telling you. So it's powerful. Yeah, this study of epigenetics, I think, is is going to be crucial to what we understand. And um, yeah, that what's the other book, You Are the Placebo, talks about this very thing of, you know, how you're your beliefs are actually more powerful than your thoughts, but your thoughts are constructing the beliefs and they're, they're laid in your body, you know? And so how do you get them out? And I think your program helps really helps couples to explore what those are in a safe way and then how to get them out through journaling and actually speaking to one another. <laughs> yes. And reframing, playing a different tape can also, right? So, so if we're playing the same tape and that tape is, is confirming this negativity, then if we can just change it just even a tiny bit so that when we hear it, we say, oh, I'm shifting, that our cells are listening. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and it's funny, the different tapes, and Hillary, you know this, that when you do think there's a problem and you start to go to the, the web and, and search, I mean, there are so many, I don't want to say dark places, but there's so many places you can end up that really start to further confirm danger, problems, look at the potential risks and costs and treatments. So, yeah, it's um, the, the ability oh, yeah. to keep ourselves in the right environment is pretty important. <laughs> You end up in chapter two, patients to patients, willing to do anything anybody tells you, right? And this isn't just fertility. This is when you're sick, right? You, you feel like your body's betrayed you, even though your mind has had a part in telling it to do so. Uh, and you, you'll take any label to make sense of that, you know? Yeah, because in the label, there becomes the potential for a fix if we trust in that medical model. And that's one of the one of the expectations, the societal norms is that when we have a problem, we don't check in with ourselves, we check in with the experts. You know, so that's one of the ways in which we can kind of reframe that. And that's that cognitive reframing that we talk about so much in the program It's cognitive behavioral therapy generally speaking, but it's also a spiritual piece to the whole process. And Hillary, oh, for sure, yes. and Hillary, I just kind of comment because it's so, it was so interesting, this, this pre-doubt of people, you know, just people that just, like you said, you almost, if you really want something, you just have this thought of, gosh, what if this doesn't come through? And um, there were so many that just had this as like a little, just always felt there was a problem, but there is others. And I just wanted to share this because I think you highlighted it, that a year or so ago, Huffington Post um, did a study on uh, women in their early twenties asking what their biggest health concern was. So this is people really just prior to even moving forward with family building and infertility was listed as a, a top three in getting the facts. So I think that whether you had that little pre-doubt as a, as a little girl or so many shared that as they were on uh, maybe birth control, just always wondered if that might have some impact on their bodies or let's face it, there's just so much being branded and marketed relative to uh, time and our biological clocks that it is for the large percentage of people prior to even starting, there's a level 
level of urgency that's existing here that you just can't ignore and it's got to be it's got to be acknowledged in understanding how that anxiety is manifesting in the process. Yeah, that article was was huge for me when I came across it because I was just so saddened by that because again, you know, are we bombarded by it and is it this cultural norms that, you know, we've kind of switched around to that have led to that? Are we bombarded by infertility on social media and, and the, the the medical market that it has become really driven by fear and so much money into it and so it seems like it's everywhere. This also kind of excited me of because women my age <laughs> You know, I'm looking down the barrel at 40 and it's, we were taught how not to get pregnant, right? Like not that you only had five days a month where you could conceive in all probability, but if a boy sneezed on you, you might get pregnant and you should go to college first and then to grad school and then to your business. And then your uterus and your ovaries will be patiently waiting for you when you are ready as if we controlled the world. (laughs) And that is not true. So I'm somewhat excited that these 20-year-olds are are looking at that as a possibility that something could go wrong, but I don't want them to have the anxiety yeah, and, and these false I'm just going to add one thing to that, result. if I may, this yeah. idea that career building and family building in this finite timeline of getting all of our sequencing of life things done collide. So... At the same time that we're told that we need to hurry up and get to motherhood, we're also told that, oh, you need to have that career too. So this idea of of this whole medicalization and technology and confirming that, oh, if you just freeze your eggs, they'll be ready for you whenever you want them. And, you know, that's not always the case. They don't always successfully survive the thaw, if you will, you know, so the medicalization is really difficult place dichotomy for for young women today, because it's I want to do all these things. I need to go to school. I want to get my job. I want to start my career. I want to have a family. I want to get married. And it's all happening in this one decade. You know, it's like, oh, my God. Right. And, you know, while it might seem like freezing your eggs is this amazing way to kind of control your destiny, so to speak. You know, if you're if you're young and you're listening to this or you know somebody that is, I would just actually really encourage them to keep listening to the other chapters because what can happen to your partner when you enter down this road? This said partner that maybe is not even on your doorstep yet, right? <laughs> your your knight in shining armor that you are going to, you know, totally sideline possibly as a result, like just it's understanding what the whole picture could entail. I think that's so important. Okay. So if somebody's listening or they know someone that is in this stage, they're like, oh my gosh, can you just give me one example maybe of how to reframe where they're at and this need for control or this um, kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of doubt? Like what's something they can do or say to themselves to help? Um, What we did in the research is we separated this group because it was so intriguing and so sad and so disturbing at the same time. But what we did is we did evidence-based versus just a thought or a feeling. And evidence-based was this whole idea, well, my mother had problems or, you know, my sister has had problems. So there was something in the family that gave them this thought. And then there were others that just said, I just have this kind of feeling. So One of the ways in which we can work with this is what we do is tell women to look for the evidence that confirms that belief. What makes you think that that's so? Ah. 
we are creating a workbook, Hillary, that will really kind of dive into these that really help us to kind of write down what it, why we think that. And then what if, what if that thought is not accurate? What if that thought is wrong? What if you could replace that thought? with another thought. So that's one of the ways in which we do it is look for the evidence and then kind of journal or write why you believe this is true. Yeah, so often we are held hostage by our beliefs and we don't we don't put any time aside to actually inspect them and understand where they came from and if we actually really believe that anymore, right? <laughs> we can change our minds. And that's exactly what it is that we're trying to do because what we think may not be true or accurate. So Thank you. Yes. Okay. So chapter two, patience to patient to patients. Yeah, I'm trying. I know there's so much information. I could talk to you guys for days. This is where the bulk of my patients are when they get to me. Uh, they're very in reactive states. They're looking to fix some predicament or get a label to understand. And a lot of them don't start with acupuncture. I think you, your study was one out of 24 that started there. The rest went directly to reproductive endocrinologists, right? So I get them really late when they're, they're yes, I'll, I'll take your voodoo herbs and I'll stick needles in me and I'll, I'll do you know, yeah. whatever you tell me to chance, you know, that they're desperate. And this is the, I think the bulk of where our listeners are probably at. And there's some really crazy things that happen in this stage in terms of a lot of them give up their life as they know it completely. Like they don't recognize themselves. Their partners begin to not recognize them. You know, they're not doing vigorous exercise. They're, they're not even having a glass of wine together. You know, they're they're overhauling their diets. They used to take pleasure in food. And now it's just this <laughs> thing that they must give themselves nutrients. Right? <laughs> um, <Yeah>. And <laughs> I know, right? It's it's It gets very regimented. It's like, and so of course, that's all they're thinking about because this is controlling all these different other aspects of their life. And one of the things that was staggering to me is that it's the stat with the 85% of people were satisfied with their life before treatment dropped to 48% in treatment. And then the one that was really, really like shattering to me was the um, the ones that were very satisfied. Yeah, what number was that? 40%. 40% were very satisfied and that dropped to 15%. Yeah. So the people that were just on top of the mountain, so to speak, are now in deep in the valley and they have no yeah. tools to to understand how they got there, right? Yeah, they feel I mean, I just think that this is where couples just they feel threatened. They're threatened, their identity is threatened, and there's there's so much urgency that they when you're threatened, you want someone to to pave the path and lead the way and and tell me the steps and tell me the process. And this is where couples are just actively engaging or many times the women actively engaging down this path. And this is for me too, what got a bit sad is that this is where the industry part of it is just, it just starts to feel like it's just all the mechanics that this is just about working parts and systems and not to say it's not parts and systems but really I think what we saw Kate that we was lost here is any sense of someone's hearts and their emotions and their intuition and just what they might feel still feels right for them as a couple it's just the it's the testing it's the mechanics it's the regimen that comes along with it and uh, there's almost no space or room for yeah, uh, some it, of the emotional health really, piece when you're this in this is process the hard, this is the struggle is real, and this is where we see the struggle. And because there were so many emotional components associated with Chapter 2, it's highly measurable. It's behaviors. It's 
feelings of sadness, feeling angry, feeling jealous, feeling misunderstood, feeling isolated. We can we can measure those things directly. So they really help us. The, the, the good thing is that we can measure them directly so we can see what we're doing that can change them. But the bad thing is also that we can measure them directly because they're so big in in women's and couples' lives. And this whole idea that they're in treatment, but I want to just back up for one second and talk about this idea that, okay, they were concerned. Their concern over this delay happened at the first month they had their period and they were not pregnant after trying. Three months, that concern turns to extreme worry. So here are these women and couples out there building all of this doubt, building all of these these fears and, and kind of connecting with them. And yet at the same time, they're not even eligible or, you know, access fertility treatment until they've been trying for 12 months. And at this point, they're already deep into this self-doubt. And then they come into this treatment position and the satisfaction, only 10% reported being satisfied with the quality of services to meet their emotional needs. It's a gap. We want women and couples to know that this is the gap that we want to have preconception health be considered as an emotional need as well as all of these other indicators. Yeah, Hillary, I think we heard yesterday the thought that the, the greatest pharmacy is our minds. And it's just, you just can't, I just wish that hopefully we continue to just reiterate through the power of these stories and lessons. You just can't discount it. Not to say there's not some other path and other things you do to put yourself in a, a higher probability of success, but the fact that this piece, because it's less tangible, you know, our minds and our thinking, it's just, it's not as tangible as changing our diet or removing products in our home or whatever those pieces are, but we all have to continue to educate that it does matter. Uh, and it could potentially matter more than so many of the other things that, that, that we spend our time on. Because, uh, yeah, in this chapter, okay, right, people suppressed life. I mean, I just feel like that might be one way to describe what's happening. We're just so threatened. Um, we are the, the moment in terms of being in the moment now, it is just, it is not about now. This is a means to an end. And we are ruminating about some future state that we need to achieve. And there's a level of urgency that you can feel it by the day, the week, the month of, um, you know, trying to make this happen. Yeah. And I'll just reiterate that this whole idea that, okay, what we come up with is couples are living to try rather than trying to live. And that's kind of the takeaway that happens here. And the primary emotions are vacillating between fear and hope, disappointment, anger, grief, sadness, and social withdrawal. Right. I, you see the same things in the stages you do in someone that's just lost a loved one. And, you know, in terms of the stages of grief and, you know, they, th every period is a funeral for them, except they're having it alone. And, you know, it's enough time passes, they don't even want to talk to their partners about it. And I feel like this is where you start to see some degradation and marriages start to happen too. Yeah. The woman kind yeah. of charges ahead and the male is kind of sidelined as to like, well, what do I do? Yeah. 
And Hillary, I'm just going to share quickly because I just, for the sake of any couple, you know, there was so much that my wife and I changed in our lives. And, and just in the program, we talk about sushi being one of them, raw fish, just one of the f- millions of things you're told potentially could contribute. We felt, why would we even be selfish if that was contributing in any way? It'd be selfish for us to continue. And as Kate analyzed, uh, you know, a lot of Aaron and I in this process as well, that, that sushi was our, that was our date night. That was our Friday nights. That was, Kate even said, wow, it was a drive to your favorite restaurant, which was a little bit of a distance. And it gave us a chance to connect and recap our weeks. And we had a drink together and level of intimacy. So I just, for the sake of all the different underwear I tried on and dropping so many different <laughs> things that I had to drink or not drink and the food we could eat and not eat, there's a level of, you know, just trusting at some point what feels right for that couple, what things might matter to them personally, to their relationships, into life. And we just, as Kate always says, proceed with caution. It's, it is normal to want to seek help and get answers. We're not suggesting otherwise. However, there's a level of, of finding some boundaries through this process that we hope that we can uh, you know, help them to achieve. If somebody's in this stage and they're completely overwhelmed, what coping mechanism would you tell them? Would you tell them to sit down and decide what are non-negotiables and what aren't together as a couple? Or what would you offer them? Absolutely. It's this whole idea that we have to kind of, there's adaptive coping and maladaptive coping. A maladaptive coping is when we ignore it or don't address it, right? So, and then adaptive coping is one way of leaning into it and kind of examining it. So yes, that's exactly what we would do. What are the things that you have given up and what has that done to your identity? Who are you now versus who you were before you started? What have you lost? Yeah, and you might be really surprised to hear what your partner thinks that they have given up, right? That you're not even aware of because you're doing all this other stuff, right? (laughs) Yes. Okay, so chapter three, this is like, this is the, the meat in the sandwich. This is where we want to get to. But this is what my patients resist the most, right? They're like, if somebody comes in and tells me to surrender one more time, right. I'm going to cut them. We, gotta, we right. heard it. I'm and that's right because they don't know how to surrender, you know, that's right? It's like, I can't handle it. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Okay, so and Hillary, but this, and this is not about giving up on child. No one in our work ever relinquished the dream and the passion, but the way in which we approach it and all these things. You know, if it was just as simple as just relax, this wouldn't be a seven and a half hour kind of program because there's so right, much more right. happening behind the scenes. But I just I want to make sure for the record that surrendering into life is in no way you know, giving up on this, this dream for parenthood. It didn't for us and it didn't for all the people that went through this this research. Well, I feel like surrender is such a, a foreign concept to a lot of, you know, self-proclaimed type A go-getters. They, and, and in general, most people in this age bracket were not taught yeah. how yeah. to surrender. Their worth was predicated on how much you do, mm. not just being. Yeah. And so they feel lazy. They Not only do they not know how to, they, they don't want to because they feel like they're somehow less than if they if they do this when really this is this is where the magic happens and you know just kind of posing this question sometimes because to my patients of what if this growth you needed as an individual or as a couple happening now is actually going to set you up for what you're about to get because you don't know what you're going to get right and and I see this play out if it doesn't play out in terms of the growth and the struggle and the infertility journey, oftentimes I see it pop up in the pregnancy itself or the delivery or postpartum. And then they're really without 
tools in postpartum, right? They're so isolated. And so I feel like everybody has to move through. It's almost like you have to learn more about yourself so that you can be the best parent. And that's where the resistance is. But this is where the magic is, right? Yeah, it was. And I I think it's worth um, just noting that this surrendering into life as we analyze all these stories, it's, it's just... There was some some tough, this first stage that we talk about is this rawness. And Kate um, really looked at my story where my wife and I, after close to five years of trying on our first, we were in an IVF workshop learning all about what that process was like. And for us, just at that time, Hillary, we were just so spent. And I probably mean that from an emotional, physical, financial standpoint, felt overwhelmed by everything we learned. And walking out of that parking lot, which I feel like was yesterday, I, I feel like I could smell the room and, and remember exactly what it felt like to leave there. And that was a really low place for us because I think when you, when Kate interviewed Aaron, uh, it was, we had nothing to show for four plus years of trying literally just about everything. And for the first time, there was no clear path in terms of where we were going next. And we were, found ourselves in this gap. And there was also a level of healing in that we realized this was not going to play out the way other facets of our life would play out in terms of our ability to kind of overcome and will things to happen. And But it was this point that we had to get through to understand where enough was enough and something to almost essentially kind of reset our expectations. And then that led us to this kind of, kind of reaching forward. So the, the way that we started to think about this journey changed. There was a big thinking component that changed. And through that, we kind of created and manifested a new vision for life and a new reality. And I think my wife became far more compassionate, found compassion for herself. And, and this led us to start to reach forward and really do things that mattered for us, not just for the outcome of we're going to work out so we can be healthier so we can have a baby or whatever the action was it was things that felt true to us uh, as individuals as a couple and started to take action um, and a lot of things that were on hold for many many years Kate says not only the things that were on hold but we actually brought a lot of things into our lives of things that we always talked about doing that that were put on hold because a lot of couples are making huge sacrifices financially and trying to save money for for treatment. And um, so you kind of get back to life and then some, as Kate would say. (laughs) People really found themselves doing, taking on new jobs. We had a lot of couples moving. It was amazing to see people getting back to life in a big way. So, I mean, you basically described really the the three pivotal parts, at least in my, my humble understanding of the program, is that you hit this place of rawness of where you were just you were done. You'd been kicked so hard coming out of that meeting. And then you kind of reached for one another and started to renew your life, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Doubt and fear became trust. You almost took all those strong emotions that were just driving us and you just started to approach this thing differently and ask different questions of what the journey might be telling you and certain gifts that might be here now that we were missing and things that we could be doing um, to live and thrive and, and feel like uh, we mattered. And Kate really looks at the web of identity that she covers throughout the whole program and where we look at how people believe of themselves and their self-esteem and self-worth. And this deteriorates over time. But in the surrendering into life, it's just powerful to see pieces of, of themselves come back. And that does matter. And, and it mattered for these couples. They got there not thinking they would have this unexpected conception. They just found this peace. They found this trust. Their potential became bigger than the problem. And, uh, you know, that led to some amazing things. And for so many couples, too, outside of the unexpected conception, Hillary, couples found 
so many found their their uh, child through adoption. There was so many other means um, that they believed that this was exactly the way the path in their journey was supposed to play out. And they believed that this baby was in their lives for a reason. And they found themselves to that place through the struggle. And the struggle was the gift. We hope through this chapter, we just bring in so many stories that you just have to stop and say, yeah, we, we can't discount these stories any longer. This whole idea of this surrender into life, the into is a very important piece because we're allowing ourselves to flow again. And I have this quote that I live by that sets the tone for this chapter. And it's life is a constant ebb of flow of holding on and letting go. And it's by Esther Etsy. But this whole idea of hold, knowing when to hold on and knowing when to let go and kind of flow down the river like a leaf, if you will, if you can use that image, is really powerful. And it reminds me so much of the serenity prayer where, um, you know, we can accept the things we cannot change, change the things we can and the courage to know the difference. And what's happening here with couples as they hit this point, they're letting go of past disappointments and letting go of trying to control the future. They're never letting go of parenthood. They're just redefining the potential of what that might be. And what that does is it brings them to a wholeness. It really is amazing. I, I understand that completely in my life. Uh, I had a I had an un, uh, unexpected parenthood and to falling into four stepsons. And, you know, I, I never would have even entertained that. <laughs> like, if you had I'm asked me on a dating questionnaire, kids, I would have been like, no, thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my you know, own, right. I'll have my own at some point, right. right? My own, as if we own our children or something, right? So, Hillary, um, you know, I, I think I'm always trying to think if I'm a listener and, and, you know, you might say, so we need to get to this place of, believing and trusting. And, um, you know, for so many, they have that, that urgency of every day that they're running out of time, you know, Hillary, that just becomes, it seems like just, just, I'd love to find peace, but until I achieve what I need to, I can't find that. And I, I just think I'm going to maybe just bring one last thing into the picture that's worth suggesting is that if we think about the research that we did on average, well, first of all, most people can't be treated um, and become the patient kind of thing for hitting that 12 month milestone. So a lot of our participants were at least a, a year plus kind of in, in the, just trying to figure this thing out on their own. And then our couple spent on average, 22 months, 22.5 months when they became the patient kind of in treatment without success. There were some massive outliers in terms of some that were there much longer. But if you just looked at that as a couple years, and then when couples did get to this place of the surrender into life, 91% had a natural unexpected conception within a year. And the only reason I want to highlight this is because I, I would just say it through the whole program is that you had couples that were essentially four plus years older when they achieved something that they did not think was possible. And these, these were people that were labeled with older and PCOS and we had low sperm and certainly unexplained infertility was about 30% of them as well. But yeah, so I just want to put that in perspective that you might, someone might be listening saying, I can't go there yet because you don't understand. I'm X age and there's a statistic on me and I just want to call it, but Kate and I, th these people were significantly older when their right. bodies surprise them. Right. And, and your sample size may not have been huge, but your results were. And so, and like you said, you know, they're four years older. So if you are truly, if, 
if FSH and AMH are truly this marker of your eggs that you have from the time you're born and you carry them through life and expose them to, you know, the environment and your thoughts and they're aging, aging, aging. If you're really believing that of what you're being fed in terms of this fear paradigm of, of do it now, do it now, you know, how in the world can you explain how those lab values sometimes change? I mean, I've seen somebody not in menopause, by the way, have a 45 FSH drop back down to a 10. Now, 10's not great, but how did that happen? And if, and if AMH is really this predictor of how many eggs you have, well, shouldn't it, shouldn't it always go down the older you get? So nobody's talking about this of like, you just trusting, like, I'm the stat, okay. I was just going to say that that's the within group variability, right? Sometimes we make these sweeping generalizations in our statistics, yet there's always within group differences. So it may be this number, but that number is an arbitrary number based on what we call a p-value in statistics that tells us whether it's significant or not. So, but there's within-group variability, and so we've got to anchor to that. Yeah, and I think the last thing I'll say is that if it was just the mechanics and the technology alone, then the success rate would be 100%, and it's not. It's, it's, it's whatever it is, it's much lower than that. Therefore, there's just other forces that matter that need to be addressed. And actually, the good news about this entire thing is it's couples connecting and finding the joy and mattering and living and staying engaged. And guess what? We believe that would yeah. contribute just as much as any potential path that they might be looking at. So what's the risk in doing it, you know? Right. Yeah. You're either going to know yourself and know your marriage better and, and be happier and more satisfied with your life, or you're going to get that and have a baby. Like, you know, that's what I say about acupuncture. It's either going to increase your awareness and your, your physical being, or you're going to get that and have a baby. Like these are not detrimental processes. You, you just have to come to it with an open mind and that it's okay to be vulnerable in this process because you do feel vulnerable when you're surrendering. And you are vulnerable when you're surrendering. And I'll just leave it with this chapter leaves us with this idea. You know, in chapter two, we found that couples were um, living to try. And now we see them trying to live again. Yes. I love that. All right, guys. That was a ton of information. So not only have you provided all this and made this huge program, but you're, yeah. you're in the... You're making a workbook so that people can go deeper, right? Um, you have agreed to so graciously provide our listeners with a free PDF with some active suggestions that they can start using right now, uh, even if they aren't haven't even purchased this um, class yet. And you so graciously give a 25% discount to our listeners and any of the um, practitioners that are affiliated with this model because you truly understand how expensive the journey of fertility can be. <laughs> and, you're, and you understand that people are seeing multiple practitioners and you're trying to make it affordable. And oh my gosh, have they? there are three different ways to consume this product, whether you need the CDs in the physical journal or you just want to do it online, or if you want the extra support of a coaching call um, with Dr. Kate. And it's there are payment plans for all three. So, you know, 
they have really set it up so that you cannot have the excuse that money or something financial is standing in your way of knowing yourself better. And I just, I'm, I'm always humbled to be around people that, that want to make the world a better place. And they, they have gone so deep within themselves to find their own calling to, and, and bring that forth, like your bravery. The world needs more people like that. So thank you for coming on the show and your time. And of course, thank you to our listeners. And if there's anything that you guys want to drive home or say for those listeners now's your chance no i would just say i mean thank you hillary we're on i think kate and i would say that we're on our own journey as well as you were head down some path of not knowing if there's more behind these stories i think you know for my wife and i we had these two occasions where we had this unexpected kind of uh, conception happen leading you to wonder if there was just something more that i need to do with these experiences and uh, but with kate and i are our own personal journey and trusting of this process and uh, our ability to touch any couple in any way and provide a little bit of hope and inspiration and guidance through these lessons. That's just a complete honor for us. That makes us whole and our lives meaningful. And we would love to hear from some of your listeners as well as the, as they move forward with your leadership uh, and guidance and support, Hillary. We'd love to stay connected and engaged. We learn through every story, through every comment that comes back to us. So thank you for the opportunity and thank the listeners for taking their time. Yeah, and I'll just say, you know, it was a beautiful experience being with you, um, Hillary. I even love your voice. So you, you, you have this, this settling quality, and I think the work that you do and, and how you can help couples working through this process is monumental. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And all you listeners can go to ladypotions.com. Just scroll down to the bottom of the homepage and you'll find the link for all your discounted rates and this amazing PDF that they're putting together to help you right here, right now. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Fertile Minds Radio, hosted at www.ladyportions.com, where you'll find past episodes, show notes, and free meditations. If you've benefited from what you've heard, leave a comment or review so it makes it easier for others to find this valuable wisdom. Let's help elevate each other. Thanks for listening.